listening to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We bring you the latest from thought leaders in financial literacy and behavioral economics to help you develop and deliver your financial literacy program. I'm Doretta Thompson, and today we're exploring financial wellness, links between health and wealth. I'm speaking with Jenna Van Drenen, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia, who's researching the role of poverty in mental health and substance use disorders. Jenna, thanks for dropping by. You're welcome. Great to be here. What inspired you to explore the impact of poverty on mental health and substance abuse? To answer that, I think I'll tell you a little bit of a story about how we in public health view health outcomes, and something that I learned pretty early in my training in uh, in undergrad, actually, when I was um, doing my first degree, and it goes a little something like this. So there's a woman who is walking by a river, and she sees somebody drowning, and she goes over and she pulls the person out of the river, and she's just about to dry them off and ask them what happened, and she sees another person in the water, so she goes and rushes and saves them and pulls them out. And... As she's pulling the second person out of the water, saving their life, drying them off, she sees that there's another and another person in the river and that the rate of people drowning is faster than she can keep up with. And so she calls for reinforcement, gets somebody to come help to rescue these drowning people from the river, and she takes a walk further upstream to see what's happening. And lo and behold, she finds the bridge that's broken. And so she figures that people are not actually jumping in the water intentionally, but falling through the cracks in this bridge. And instead of um, pulling people out one by one after they've nearly drowned, um, which is quite resource intensive, she decides to just fix the bridge, get a plank of wood, it's a lot cheaper, and it can prevent people from falling in in the first place. So we like to use that story to explain what we do in public health, which is working upstream and trying to fix environments and social situations to prevent people from becoming sick in the first place. So if we take this analogy back to mental health, to your question and why I look at poverty, it's because I believe in fixing bridges. Um, Because we know that the connections between poverty and mental health are really strong, and we can do things like pull people out of the water, we can give them antidepressants once they're already sick, we can link them up with a psychiatrist, but this solves the problem after it already happens, and we don't actually do a very good job of solving the problem. We're not very good at treating mental health really as a society even when we go with that um, that sort of pulling people out of the water approach. Um, but we can fix our social structures and um, focus on upstream factors that cause people to become sick in the first place. And if we start to modify some of those, looking at social support, poverty and income security, for example, those are things that can prevent people from becoming sick in the first place. So that's part of the reason why I do work at that level and why I'm interested in this connection, because I think it has the most potential for change at the population level and for really improving our all of our mental health outcomes as a population. Um, can you summarize for me just briefly um, what what the key findings you're working on right now, what, what you're looking at? Sure. So I'll start a little higher up because most researchers like myself focus on very specific problems. But um, I'll just start by saying we know that the relationship between poverty and mental health exists. We know that when people are experiencing financial strain and low income, they're more likely to have higher rates of um, mental illness and stress and depression. So in that context, I started to look at some of the factors, some more nuances in that relationship, some of the factors that are really driving this from very early ages. So I've, I've looked across the life course to see how early this starts. And um, 
my dissertation research, actually, when I was working on my PhD a few years ago, found that um, the connection starts as early as childhood. So I looked at childhood poverty, and um, I controlled for income later on, for people's marital situations, their families, their jobs, their neighborhoods, everything I could control for later in their lives. And what I was left with was still this realization that actually childhood poverty really matters, even when you account for people you know, um, breaking the cycle of poverty later in life, it still matters that they were exposed to it as children. And I look at how that relationship differs for men and women, for example. My dissertation research found that the um, role of poverty in mental health outcomes was actually a little stronger for young boys than it was for girls. Um, and I, I looked not just at poverty, so that, that was one of the findings that I'll highlight today, but I also looked at early childhood adversity. So things like trauma, um, and terrible events that children are exposed to in the childhood home. They can be economic and they can also be social. And these things really set us up for chains of disadvantage and they imprint themselves on our on our brains as we go throughout our lives. Is it intergenerational? So if, if there is a change from, say, a child grows up in poverty, um, as they grow up they somehow break that cycle, but we know they're still affected. Mm-hmm. Has, is anybody looking at what happens in the next generation? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, because we know, of course, that these trends are intergenerational, and although some people are able to break the cycle, um, the reality is that most of us aren't. Most of us stay at the economic levels that we um, are born into, and the, some of the most powerful predictors of our own health actually are our parents' income, which is kind of you know paradoxical. We like to think that we live in a society where that shouldn't be the case. You know, each of each of us should be able to determine our future. But um, but by and large, we see these cycles of poverty repeating themselves, and and just um, income stagnation as well. Not it's not just for those who are very poor, but. Um, but to your question, if you if you do manage to um, to break that cycle and you have uh, perhaps achieved more economic prosperity than originally your family had, um, I think we still need to understand how how mental health translates through generations in those situations, what the social factors are like there. Um, I mean, so one one study that I'm aware of did look at postpartum depression and then babies that were born to low-income mothers. And, um, and we know that the effects of um, mental health can translate through generations that way. So, for example, being a baby and having um, a mother who's experiencing postpartum depression increases your likelihood of having um, depression yourself later on in your life and then also having experiencing postpartum depression yourself if you go on to have a child. So we can see some of the ways that these patterns repeat themselves. And I think your question is a great one. We need we need more sophisticated science in that area. We're just starting to understand. Um, I, I think we've been told a story, and we originally thought as you know scientists that the, the role of genetics and biological factors is what's much stronger in mental health issues than it actually is. It, it sh- surely is a factor. Um, but the majority of the relationship between people's mental health outcomes and their and themselves is actually not due to genetic and biological factors. The majority majority of it we can't explain just you know through your genes. So we're starting to tackle the other factors, um, but we're still you know we're still in the early stages. So what does the the impact of poverty, what does that stress look like, and how does it affect mental health? I like to kind of sum it up in, in two broad categories. In one sense, it being under extreme financial stress and having 
day-to-day insecurity affects your mental health by changing the way you act. So, for example, you can't sleep very well at night if you're constantly awake, worried about how you're going to put food on the table or how you're going to pay your next bill. You don't have time to exercise or to eat healthy, and um, those things actually affect our mental health, not just our physical health. And, for example, you might not have... um, the resources to afford medication or to afford to see a counselor if you're starting to feel a little bit down. So we can see that there are ways that not having enough money actually changes the way you act and then thus impacts your mental health. Um, But it also changes the way you think. So being exposed to poverty that's persistent and recurrent and where you have no hope of really changing, you can't see anything, foresee anything being different. It causes your brain to react in unhealthy ways. So stress is helpful for us in short-term circumstances. Like if you're giving a talk, for example, it's actually helpful to have a little extra adrenaline or cortisol. But the problem is if that stressor never goes away, your brain doesn't know to reduce that stress response. It keeps keeps the fight-or-flight response active, and it keeps... Um, releasing these chemicals that are supposed to be helpful, but they actually end up um, being quite harmful for your mental health. So in that way, poverty can change the way you think and also involves quite a lot of social comparisons. I mean, we're told that if we don't have enough money to get by, it's because we failed. You know, everybody thinks that there should be, you know, you should be able to make it in the world if you try hard enough and if you work hard enough. And those messages really get under people's skin. They really get to you because you try your hardest and then you realize that no matter how hard you try, you still can't break out of the economic situation that you're in because of forces beyond your control and you kind of feel like a failure. And that feeling of failing over time really profoundly impacts people's mental health. That's really interesting. So is that feeling of failure one of the reasons that people struggle so much with the idea of money and talking about money? Um, as, as educators, you know, we're, we're, we're looking in the field of uh, developing financial literacy to help people make better financial decisions. Um, people don't like to talk about money. They don't like to. It's almost become the last taboo. And, and do you think that that could be part of the stress that you're looking at at a very profound level where um, between poverty and substance abuse, et cetera, it's almost a spiral down, if you like. And we're often looking at people, say, in workplaces and the impact of financial stress in workplaces. But would the same thing be happening in their brains, affecting affecting decision-making and affecting um, how they're uh, able to cope and their ability to ask for help? Absolutely, yeah. Um, And some research has looked at inequality and the social comparisons that we make. And um, some studies have found that it it's not just about um, absolute poverty, so that material level of not having enough money to put food on the table, but um, but comparing yourself to other people. And exactly like what you're saying, that comparison happens at every level. It happens um, between colleagues, and if you don't make as much money as the person beside you, you feel like you're not as good as of a person. And that's, to me, not right. It, it's not really representative of you know how we are as humans. Um, but really just the economic systems that we're operating in. So, so I think it is part of the reason why people are uncomfortable talking about money and part of that shame and insecurity, it translates at every level, even among people who are well-employed and, and who have stable jobs. So you've talked about 
uh, poverty and mental health as being cyclical mm-hmm. um, and passing through generations. How does that cycle start, and is there any way we can look at stopping it, at mending those bridges? <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> there is. Uh, in terms of how it starts, I, I think... Um, how it starts is also part of part of the solution, and right now we have um, a fairly broken social safety net. I would say we don't really take care of people very well when they have these shocks, when they have um, terrible traumatic events and lose their job, and um, we allow them to become homeless and completely destitute before providing a little bit of income and. Um, what happens is that you have to deplete all of your savings before you're even eligible to apply for something like welfare, uh, for example. And once you do, you're told, you know, not explicitly, but but very much you get the message from people in society that um, that you're not worthy of that support, that it's, it's you know, a little bit of a, a leg up, but it's, um, but people stigmatize you when you receive that money. And so, um, so we have a social safety net that really tells people that when they access it, they are, you know, bringing down the rest of us. They're <laughs> they're a drain on society, and people feel that. So to look at some of the solutions and how we can better buffer from financial shocks, because it really does affect all of us. I mean, I, I was looking at um, some research done by the American Psychological Association recently. They did a national study, looked at everybody across the nation, and um, 72% of people reported worrying about money at least some of the time. That's three quarters of us. That's almost all of us. And so it's not just, um, you know, it's not just the the small few, but we actually can design our societies in better ways, and we can fix the bridges. Um, and so there's multiple different levels that you could intervene at. We can give people antidepressants or take them to a psychiatrist or something like that at the individual level. But again, if we want to think more preventatively and if we want to work at a systems level, something that will impact everyone, not just one of one at a time, um, we can do things like offer financial security. So um, in I think part of the reason I was asked to come here today is because I'm on the board of the directors of the Basic Income Canada Network, and we look at ways that we can repair our social safety net that offer more financial security, and um, not necessarily security that everybody would need to access, but that, but knowing that having um, that source of income there, just in case you need it, if you experience some kind of terrible event or some kind of shock in your life and end up losing your source of income, you're not going to become homeless before um before society steps in, that we can actually buffer these shocks and um, and repair some of that financial stress before it even becomes a problem. So we have very robust systems in place. Actually, we take care we take great care of our kids and our seniors. We have um, unconditional income transfer programs that work for children in society. It's called the Canada Child Benefit. And when that was introduced, we saw improvements in children's mental and physical health and their parents. So it actually extended to the the parents, of course, who got those direct cash transfers. And that's just money that the government gives you. It happens when you fill out your taxes. You know, I wouldn't know if you were receiving it. You wouldn't know if I were receiving it. It's just a little bit of extra money because the government recognizes that when you have kids growing up in very poor environments, it's really a problem for their health. It really sets them up for failure. 
And we know that if we just invest a few dollars early on, we can save ourselves hundreds of thousands of dollars later downstream. So we have these systems in place for children. We, of course, have robust seniors benefits too, but those don't kick in until you turn 65. Again, once you turn 65, it's a direct transfer from the government. It's money that goes in your bank account if you need it, um, if you don't have a pension from other sources and um, need to access a little bit of a top-up, you can access the Guaranteed Income Supplement and the Canada Pension Plan. Um, and we don't tell seniors that they're bad or that they've failed by needing to access this. But we, So we have these two systems in place, and we have evidence, actually, that seniors' mental health improves when they go on... Um, when they receive seniors' benefits when they turn 65. So, you know, you're 64, and all of a sudden you turn 65, and you have access to the support and knowledge that you're going to be okay, even if something terrible happens financially. Um, and that actually improves people's mental health. Researchers at the University of Calgary have looked at this relationship and have shown both mental and physical health improvements. But So what we're left with is this gap in between children and seniors where we have 18 to 64-year-olds that are really left in very precarious situations. And we have a workforce that's changing pretty rapidly. We have more precarious work than ever before. We have... Um, you know, quite a bit of contract and gig work and not a lot of security day-to-day, month-to-month that we're going to be okay. Most of us don't know um, much beyond our next paycheck or two, and that produces this kind of financial insecurity that's really dangerous for our mental health. So by doing something like implementing an income security program that just exists in the population, that's a direct transfer to people if they need it, if they fall below a certain income level, they get a little top up. This is something that can improve physical and mental health. And um, we know because we tried it once. So in Manitoba in the 1970s, we tried um, offering a guaranteed income to a community of people in Dauphin, Manitoba, and we studied the results and we found that there was an 8.5% reduction in hospitalization rates in that group that was receiving um, the income support. And again, not everybody accessed it, but if your income fell below a certain level during the experiment, you got a top up. And just having that knowledge improved people's health pretty dramatically. And those 8.5% reductions in hospitalizations that we saw were primarily due to psychiatric um, hospital admissions. That was the largest category of hospital admissions that was really driving the change. So we know how to do it. We know it needs to be done. And I, I think we can do a better job as a society. I think we can start to reframe what we think about um, as an antidepressant. I think we can start to reframe and think about social connections, organizational policies like mental health um, days at work and we can start to think about societal level measures as well like implementing some kind of guaranteed income that could act as antidepressants for all of us for the whole society and it doesn't even involve taking pills. I recall reading something about the Manitoba experiment and that the the data actually got buried for a number of years and uh, and then was was looked at and actually the impact extended for a very long period of time um, that that positive impact on on the health of of the town etc that's right the data wasn't analyzed right after the experiment was done there um, was kind of a loss of a political will and the country sort of moved on and went in a different direction um, and and cut off the money for the experiment. Actually, we saw the same thing happen with the Ontario um, basic income pilot that was just in place. It got cut um, before it had a chance to um, be finished. And this is devastating from you know for a researcher. It's like you have all this potential. We could we could find the answers to our questions. Um, so so the experiment in Manitoba only. Um, 
only got to last for part of the time that it was planned, but it was still several years that it was in place. And it wasn't until um, Evelyn Forger, mm-hmm. the University of Manitoba, got a grant um, later, nearly uh, 30 years later, to go back and study it. And she and she dug up all the data, and she did quite extensive research and found that, yes, these um, benefits extend beyond just the time that people are offered the income support. And also, I think very interestingly, that the benefits extend to the whole community. It's not just people who are receiving the income support that benefit. It's it's actually the knowledge that your neighbor is going to be okay that makes that makes you sleep better at night. It helps us. We're, we're social creatures, and we need to know that you know our children are going to be okay, and they're going to be able to save for their future and to and to go to school and to do things that they want to do. So even if we're not directly receiving income support, it actually helps us psychologically, knowing that our community is. Um, so I think that's very interesting and very profound. So what what light do you see? Do you see that? Uh, are are you hopeful about change? In some ways, yes. I mean, I think um, I think there is an acceptance that what we're doing right now isn't working. And I think that's a really great place to start because from a lot of different perspectives, when you look at the way that we are designing our social safety net, it's really not working. It's not meeting the changes that are happening in our labor market. Um, and whether you come from an anti-poverty perspective or whether you're a little bit more concerned about government bureaucracy, um, or even if you just care about efficiency and you want you know, more bang for your buck, there's a, kind of a realization that what we're doing is really not working. So I think that's where I draw hope from, that there is a lot of interest in these ideas about how we might restructure our society. And I think they're not just from one place. It's not just anti-poverty advocates that are saying this. It's actually a large community of academics and researchers like myself, as well as you know people in business who are saying, we, we need to do better. I don't want my tax dollars paying for emergency department visits when I know that smaller amount of money could actually prevent people from going there in the first place. So um, so that's the light I see. Well, thank you very much. It's been great. Great. Thanks. You have been listening to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. For more information and resources, visit our website at cpacanada.ca slash financial literacy. For more episodes, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean. Podbean.